The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to Epitaph. In the 1940s, folklorist Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Henke cataloged a new type of urban legend, rapidly spreading around the country. The title of their article in California Folklore Quarterly gave the phenomena a name, The Vanishing Hitchhiker. In season one, Epitaph travels the roads of America to investigate the local variations of the Vanishing Hitchhiker legend to discover where these ghost stories intersect with local history and truth. This is a bonus episode. The Mini Ghost of Bluebell Hill. In the early morning hours of July 13, 1974, Maurice Goodenough rushed into the Rochester Police Station in Kent, England to report that he'd hit a pedestrian on a route known as the A229. He told police that she'd appeared suddenly in his headlights and that, though he'd hit the brakes, it was too late to avoid running into her. The girl just walked out in front of me from the edge of the road, he said. My car hit her with a hell of a bang. He jumped out of the car and found the injured girl laying in the road. She had a cut on her forehead and scraped knees. She was half conscious, he said, and muttered the word mummy several times. He grabbed a tartan blanket from his car and wrapped her in it to keep her warm. He tried to wave down other motorists, but none of them stopped. So, unable to see a telephone box and, in panic, unsure that he should put the girl in his car, he decided to move her to safety beside the road and then drove to the police station. Within 30 minutes, Goodenough and the police officers had returned to the spot, and they found the blanket, but the girl was no longer there. By dawn, a tracker dog had been brought in to help search for the girl, but due to heavy rain the night before, no scent, trace, or bloodstains were ever found. Police checked hospital admissions but failed to locate anyone that fit the girl's description. We would appeal for any parent whose child has some unexplained injuries like a bump on the head to contact us, a spokesman said. We would also like to hear from anyone whose child is missing. Maurice Goodenough was certain of what he'd experienced. I'm not going mad, he said, but where did she vanish? And though neither Goodenough nor the police could explain what had happened, the press was quick to provide their explanation. The girl had to have been a ghost. They supported their contention not only with her disappearance, but with the lack of damage to Maurice Goodenough's car, and as no report of an injured or missing child was ever brought forth to contest their premise, they had successfully linked Goodenough's experience to an existing legend of the ghost of Bluebell Hill. It was the first time that the hauntings at Bluebell Hill would see widespread media attention. But it wouldn't be the last. The media who reported the story, surprisingly, didn't seem all that concerned with finding a young girl who may have been struck by a car before disappearing. Instead, they were quick to link the incident to a fatal accident that had occurred on Bluebell Hill nine years earlier, in November of 1965. However, when you dig into the stories of hauntings at Bluebell Hill, you'll find that there are many more ghost encounters reported here than just a girl who appears in a roadway before being struck. More than 50 documented eyewitness accounts dating back to the 1930s tell stories of a broad variety of experiences. There's a young woman seen walking quietly beside the road before disappearing. 
There are women who fit the more traditional vanishing hitchhiker lore, disappearing from the vehicle either before or shortly after arriving at their destination. There's an old woman dressed in black with a tartan shawl who carries a bundle of sticks or heather. Some have argued that these sightings may fit into a larger archetype of pseudo-ancient local folklore, the maiden, the mother, and the crone. These three are celebrated as a triune deity of womanhood by Wiccans and other neo-paganists who visit the ancient Neolithic stones in the area. But there are other ghosts reported here too. There's a girl on a bicycle. There are male vanishing hitchhikers. And of course there were other sightings of a girl who suddenly appears in the roadway before being struck, similar to what Maurice Goodenough reported in what is now known as the Goodenough Incident. With so many hauntings of so many different types all in one location, we simply don't have time or resources to dig into them all. But thanks in no small part to Sean Tudor's excellent and exhaustive research presented in his book The Ghosts of Bluebell Hill, on this episode, we will share the stories of several of the hauntings, and perhaps the real people who, each for their own reasons, find themselves amongst the many ghosts of Bluebell Hill. Southwest of London, England, lies the county of Kent. Quarries at Swanscombe suggest the area has been occupied since the Paleolithic. There are megaliths in Medway dating back to the Neolithic. The Ringelmeyer Gold Cup, discovered in 2001, dates back to the Bronze Age. The Romans arrived in Britain through the marshes of East Kent around 43 AD, and less than a decade later, when Julius Caesar described it, he wrote that the area was the home of the Cantiaci, or Cantii, who, he said, were by far the most civilized inhabitants of Britain. With the Roman invasion came roads, along with paving an ancient trackway known as the Watling Road between what is now Canterbury and St. Albans, they also constructed other roads to connect the ports of Dover, Lyme, and Richborough. One of these roads, Roman Road Number 13, set the route that would eventually become known as the A229. The road begins in the Medway town of Rochester, descending the slope of the North Downs Chalk Hills at Bluebell Hill as it runs south toward Maidstone. The A229 runs between and amongst a number of the Medway megaliths, each with their own folklore. Kit's Cody House is a dolmen made up of three upright stones and a capstone at the eastern end of a chambered tomb. Antiquarians compared it to Stonehenge and linked it to Horsa, brother of the first Judish king of Kent after the Germanic invasion in the 5th century, who is believed to have been buried nearby. Folklorist John H. Evans wrote that local legend suggests that Kit's Cody House was built by three witches who once lived on Bluebell Hill, and raised the capstone with the help of a fourth witch. Nearby sits Little Kit's Cody House, often mistakenly associated with ancient druids, which was pulled down in the late 17th century. Folklorist Leslie Grinzel suggested that it was given the name The Countless Stones, after a local folktale said that a baker from Aylesford attempted to count the stones by placing a loaf of bread on each. The devil is said to have taken one of the loaves and appeared in its place. When the baker tried to count the loaves, he discovered that he had more than he brought with him, and just as he was about to call out the number, he fell dead. The folklore survived until 1976, when Grinzel noted that people still try to count the stones by chalking numbers onto them. Beale Post said that a sack full of human bones was found near another one of the megaliths, known as the Coffin Stone, in the 1830s. Others suggest that the bones and skulls were merely discovered when a hedge was removed. And in a narrow strip of woodland beside the A229 is the Upper White Horse Stone. Local legend holds that the banner of the White Horse, which would eventually become adopted as a symbol of Kent, 
was found next to or under this stone. It's more likely that this stone, or another, the lower white horse stone, which is now thought to have been buried under the road itself, might represent part of another chambered tomb. But looking back through thousands of years of history and folklore, it seems almost inevitable that if you have a road which runs through and over a number of ancient burial sites and near places where ancient kings, druids, witches, and even the devil himself have played a major role in the local folklore, this sort of place would almost have to be haunted. In the spring of 1957, Leon Posner was working as a taxi and wedding driver, operating near Chatham's Town Hall. He often worked a late shift that ended in the early morning hours, and had just dropped off two soldiers at their barracks in Maidstone when, on his way back at around 1 o'clock in the morning, he saw a woman walking toward him on the roadside. It was a clear night, and he was able to see the young woman easily. She was wearing a long dress and a hat. He swerved around her before pulling over and stopping his car. After all, a woman walking on the road at this time of night may need a ride, and he was a cab driver. But when he got out of his car, there was no one there. On arriving home in Rochester, he woke up his wife to tell her about the strange experience he just had. But rather than being excited about it or suggesting that he'd seen a ghost, she told him to go to bed. So he did. The next day, still bothered by what he'd seen, he called the police and asked if there were any reports of an accident or of the young woman in the hat walking beside the road, and according to his son Howard, he was told that he had likely seen a ghost and to simply forget about it. Howard Posner, who shared his father's story with author Neil Arnold, said that whenever his father told of his experience, it was always with a sense of unease. He never spoke of any other paranormal experiences and remained convinced of what he'd experienced until the end of his life. Wendy Lang also saw the young girl in the 1960s, before construction of the divided highway began. She worked then in Strood, and her boyfriend would pick her up after work and drive up to the Speedway at Westham Stadium on Tuesday and Thursday nights. They would often return late, arriving in Chatham well after midnight. On this particular night, in October or November, Wendy caught sight of a woman in a long white dress standing motionless beside the roadway. Illuminated by their headlights, Wendy got a clear look at the woman and could describe her with a good amount of detail. The girl was 18 to 20 years old, she thought, with shoulder-length hair. Her dress was old-fashioned in style with a square neckline banded at the waist with long sleeves. Not a wedding dress, she said, but something more common to the late Victorian era or the early 20th century. Wendy remarked to her boyfriend, What's she doing here at this time of night? But her partner hadn't seen anything. He turned his rearview mirror to look back, but still saw no one. Thinking the person might be in trouble, she told her boyfriend to stop. So he ran back to the spot where Wendy had seen the woman, but he couldn't find her. He looked down the steep bank on one side of the road and in a strip of woods on the other side, but came back and reported that there was simply no one there. Joe Chester, a Chatham resident, was pushing his bicycle up the road near Bluebell Hill Village and just downhill from the Upper Bell Inn when, he said, he encountered this young girl in a nightgown or frock who ran from the hedge. He said she looked like she was soaking wet, her hair hanging around her face as she headed straight toward him. When she got to the front wheel of his bicycle, she stopped for a moment and stared straight at him before heading off down the middle of the road and eventually disappearing into the hedge again. Mr. Chester described her to the Kent Messenger as in her late teens or early twenties, about five foot two inches tall with shoulder length brown hair. He said that she was wearing a light-colored dress with a flower print on it, and she was barefoot. 
He found the encounter strange enough that he told the paper that he'd never ridden home so fast in his entire life. But he also didn't attribute it to anything supernatural. Several years later, around 1976 or 77, Anne-Marie Austin and a female friend saw a woman near the bus stop close to the Upper Bell Inn in Bluebell Hill Village. Passing her on their way down toward Maidstone, Mrs. Austin remarked that she thought they were seeing a ghost. The woman appeared deathly white, she said, and appeared unreal and without proper substance. Mrs. Austin rationalized the sighting away as there were credible, alternative reasons for a woman to be there. There was the bus stop. There was the inn. There was a pub, and she also knew that an ex-boyfriend of hers, a musician named Richard Studholm, had also had an odd encounter on Bluebell Hill. We'll get to that a little bit later. Mrs. Austin decided not to go back for a second look at the woman. There are more modern sightings of this particular ghost, too. Nick Morgan, a self-described skeptic, had an encounter on Bluebell Hill in July of 1991. At the time, he was living in Chatham and would frequently walk from the bottom of Bluebell Hill to the Davis Estate in the very early hours of the morning, usually sometime between 12.30 and 2.30 a.m. He was dropped off at the motorway exit at the bottom of the hill and commenced walking up the road. He noted that there was no traffic whatsoever on this particular night, and he said that there were an amazing number of foxes out. He had counted almost two dozen as he scaled the hill. Twenty minutes or so into his walk, he heard footsteps behind him. Nick turned and saw a young woman, about 60 meters or so behind him, walking in the same direction. He described her as youngish and well-dressed, and though she didn't make eye contact, she was walking with some haste, as if she were in a hurry to get somewhere. Bluebell Hill is described as a place where you wouldn't expect to see pedestrians late at night. And women walking the hill by themselves late at night is even more unexpected. So wanting the woman to know that he knew that she was there, and that he meant her no harm, Nick moved to the other side of the road. As she kept pace with him, Nick wondered where she would have come from. It was well past last call at the local pubs by then, and he hadn't passed her at the bottom of the hill. Her footsteps remained audible behind him for quite a while, and then, suddenly they stopped. Several years later, Nick picked up a book in Dover and read about the ghost of Bluebell Hill, and although the basic story was different than his encounter, he was reminded of the young woman who'd walked behind him up Bluebell Hill before appearing and disappearing with no explanation. Sometime in the early 1990s, likely between 92 and 94, Anne King and four friends were returning home to Gravesend after a night out in Maidstone. At the top of the hill, on the approach to the A229, the party of women saw a young woman walking northward on the side of the road near the grass and scrub bushes. The woman was slim and wore a long, light-colored dress of old-fashioned style with a tight bodice and floor-length skirt. She also wore a white hat with a floppy brim and carried a handbag or a basket over one arm. She walked casually, which was unusual for that time of night along that road. And her appearance prompted conversation in the car. Some suggested that she must be on her way home from a fancy dress party, or that she might have broken down. It was suggested that they should stop and offer her a lift. As they passed her, she didn't seem to notice them. She didn't look up, or even turn her head. She simply continued on, staring straight forward. Perhaps it's a ghost, one of the women joked, but a moment later, when Anne checked her mirror and two others looked back only to find that the woman had vanished, no one found it very funny. In 2011, a lady approached author Neil Arnold to share with him an encounter that her husband had had several years earlier in 2005. She was skeptical of his story, she said, 
but her husband had been freaked out after seeing a woman in a whitish dress wearing a whitish hat walking beside the road around 6.30 a.m. He thought it odd to have seen her there at that early hour and, after driving past her, checked his mirrors only to find that she had vanished. And then finally, between 1.30 and 3 o'clock on an autumn morning in 2008, a driver for the Royal Mail, Paul Lowing of Robin Hood Lane in Walterslade, was returning to the mail depot at the former site of Fort Bridgewood when he saw a young woman in a white dress and a white hat walking up the bicycle path beside the road. As he passed her, Paul looked in his mirror and she had disappeared. But if all of these reports of sightings of the ghost of a woman with dark hair, dark eyes, in a white or light-colored turn-of-the-century style dress and a white hat are true, several questions then arise. Who had she been? And why was she still here? In the evening of Thursday, September 21, 1916, John Jennings was gathering blackberries with his children. John was a grocer in Rochester, and they had chosen a secluded little trail off the south side of the Rochester Maidstone Road, a road that today would be known as the B-2097. On their way back out of the woods, Jennings saw something odd hidden in the underbrush and decided to investigate. What he uncovered was a badly decomposed, mostly skeletal body. He hurried his children out to the road and seeing a soldier walking by with a young woman friend, called them over for assistance. From the body's shoes, stockings, necklace, and what remained of its hair, they determined that the skeleton was likely that of a woman, and together they alerted the authorities. On his way home to Rochester, Jennings told others what he had discovered. And one of those people mentioned that a young woman from Bluebell Hill had been seen walking up the road with a soldier six weeks before but she hadn't been seen since. This was dismissed by the coroner investigating the body as hearsay, but perhaps it shouldn't have been. The police superintendent stationed a constable to keep guard over the remains until the next morning when a more thorough search of the crime scene could be performed. On inspection of the remains, which were found laying parallel to the road and covered with cut grass in an attempt to hide the body, the police immediately suspected foul play. The girl was found laying face down, with her left arm outstretched and her right arm folded under the body. On her right hand, she still wore a white glove. Her hair was still fixed with a side comb, which she wore. Her hair was still fixed with a side comb, and she wore a unique necklace, a gold chain with a pendant that contained a bullet engraved with a cross. The sole of her left shoe indicated, the police said, that she had been drugged a short distance and a white hat with a floppy brim, decorated with pink roses, was found nearby. A piece of muslin fabric had been stuffed into her mouth so far that the fabric had adhered itself to her hyoid bone, which sits at the base of the tongue. Her distinctive pendant, the bullet engraved with a cross, identified her almost immediately as Emily Maria Trigg, who'd been reported missing on August 6th. The bullet had once been German, and it was sent to her by her brother William, who was one of three brothers fighting in France. It was given to her as a gift for her fourth brother's wedding a few months before. When she had died, Emily Trigg had been working in Rochester for Catherine Cooper, who lived on Maidstone Road. Each Sunday afternoon, Emily would make a 45-minute walk down the Maidstone Road on Bluebell Hill to visit her mother, usually arriving sometime after afternoon tea. On August 6th, her mother had watched for her, but Emily never arrived. Mrs. Trigg knew that Emily's employer was entertaining wounded soldiers at her home, though, so she assumed Emily had just been caught at work. It rained that evening, 
So when Emily failed to return to Rochester, Miss Cooper, likewise, thought nothing of it. After all, Emily had been known to stay over at her mother's house instead of walking home in the rain. On Tuesday morning, Mrs. Trigg arrived at Catherine Cooper's home with a bundle of clean clothes for Emily, and that was when they both discovered that she had gone missing. They quickly contacted police who, it would seem, circulated a description but didn't bother searching her known route. Their description was of a girl, approximately five feet tall with brown eyes and light brown hair. She was believed to be wearing a pale blue dress and a white hat trimmed with roses and black velvet and perhaps a comb in her hair. Investigating the woods near where her body was discovered, the police found her clothing. All of the garments had been ripped and torn and appeared to have been removed from the body with considerable violence, the police said. On the other side of the Maidstone Road, they found her leather handbag and purse, several handkerchiefs, her left glove, and a piece of linen that was determined to have been part of her underwear. It matched the material that had been found shoved down her throat. Her body was found in such an advanced state of decomposition that a precise cause of death could not be determined with any medical certainty. But even so, it was evident that she had been criminally assaulted before she was killed. Also found in her purse were a picture of a soldier, a private named George Harris who she'd been seeing, and a letter from Mrs. Howard of Bromley offering her a job. According to her employer, Miss Cooper, Emily and Private Harris were engaged. He'd been wounded in fighting in France and was recovering in a hospital in Shoreham. They expected to be married as soon as he was well enough to do so. A couple of weeks before she died, while taking her younger sister to a bus station in Chatham, Emily met another soldier. He had spoken to her and walked her back to Miss Cooper's house in Rochester. As they walked, he asked if she intended to be faithful to her fiancé, to which she replied, Of course I do. Miss Cooper said that, on Thursday night, Emily had asked her if she had seen Emily talking to a soldier at the gate. Miss Cooper said that she hadn't been sure it was Emily, but that she had seen the soldier. She told the coroner that she hadn't been able to see the rank of the man, only that he was tall and wore glasses, which, of course, didn't give investigators much to go on. She told Emily that it was foolish to talk to strangers, and that she later heard that Emily had talked of plans to see that same soldier again on August 6th, the same day that she had disappeared. Emily Trigg was assaulted and killed on or about the afternoon of August 6, 1916, while walking to her mother's along the Rochester Maidstone Road. She was 20 years old. Her remains were quietly laid to rest in the St. Mary's Churchyard in Burham Parish on Saturday, October 7, 1916. Her funeral was attended by her mother, sister, two brothers, and other friends, relatives, and neighbors. On October 9th, the inquest, unable to determine the cause of death due to the body's decay and having found no one to voluntarily step forward and confess that they had killed her, returned a verdict of simply found dead. On October 21st, Charles B. Hicks, a bombardier with the Royal Garrison Artillery stationed in Winchester, was arrested and charged on, I quote, suspicion of being concerned in feloniously, willfully, and malice aforethought killing and murdering Emily Maria Trigg at Woodham on or about August 6th. Asked if he had anything to say in his defense, Hicks simply stated that he was innocent and had been brought there by mistake. He was held until the morning of Tuesday, October 24th, at which time court convened. The courtroom was crowded with people hoping to see evidence presented that would show Charles Hicks's role in Emily's death. Instead, police simply announced to the judge that their questioning of the accused had resulted in their doubts being sufficiently answered, and they had no further interest in bringing a case against him. 
Hicks was promptly acquitted and left the court with his friends. As it turns out, the entirety of the evidence against him was something that he had said in his sleep. Emily's murder remained unsolved and her attacker, or attackers, escaped justice. The strip of woodland where the attack occurred and where her body was discovered, known as the Coal Pit Bank, still exists between the old turnpike and the shoulder of the M2 motorway, just yards away from the junction of the B2097 and A229 roads at Bridgewood, just north of Walterslade. This is very near where Joe Chester and Wendy Lang reported seeing a ghostly woman either emerging from the hedge or standing near it. It's also approximately where Nick Morgan's encounter with the girl suddenly appearing behind him, walking for a distance, and then just as suddenly disappearing occurred. Paul Lowing and Ann King's encounters occurred between 500 and 1,000 feet from Mrs. Triggs' home, the place where Emily was trying to get to on the north end of Bluebell Hill Village. Violent attacks and unresolved murders are often explanations for why ghosts may remain, and sadly, Emily's story features both of these elements. The fact that many of the sightings of this particular girl seem to be in places of significance to what we know of Emily's story tend to lend some credence to the idea that perhaps Emily Trigg is still seen walking her route from Rochester to Bluebell Hill Village. But it's possible that Emily Trigg's ghost may have been involved in the earliest recorded ghost sighting at Bluebell Hill, and also the earliest report of a vanishing hitchhiker that we'll encounter this season. Jack Woodger lived in Bluebell Hill all of his life. In 1929, he had just started a job at the Aylesford Paper Mill, where he would work rotating shifts for more than 43 years. His wife would work at the Bridgewood Cafe, just a bit north of Bluebell Hill, for more than 50 years. Jack had gotten off work one night in 1934 and was riding his new motorcycle home at around 10 o'clock when, as he came around the corner near the Lower Bell Pub, he saw a girl standing in the middle of the road. In those years, it probably wasn't as uncommon as it would seem to be today. The road was quiet and dark and there was almost no traffic at that hour so walking in the middle of the road was likely safer than walking near the edge and the woods that bordered it. Jack Woodger stopped, of course, and asked the girl if she needed a lift somewhere. She asked to be taken to Burrow, and he recalled saying, well, hop on and I'll take you there. He took her along Old Pilgrim's Road to Burrow, eventually dropping her off on Church Street, right next to the St. Mary's Church. She got off the bike and started to walk away, but by the time he had turned his motorcycle around to head back home, she had completely disappeared. He dropped her off right next to St. Mary's Churchyard, the place where Emily Trigg had been buried. If Emily Trigg was the first vanishing hitchhiker at Bluebell Hill, she certainly isn't the most frequently reported or even the most famous. The very first article published about the Bluebell Hill ghost appeared in the Kent Messenger in December of 1967. It tells the standard story of a girl picked up by a couple in a car, taking her place in the back seat, giving the driver an address, and then disappearing before they arrived. The author of that article, Roy Plascott, wrote about the ghost again six months later in May of 1968. Both of these stories attributed the origin of the ghost to an automobile accident, and the dates of the story seem to coincide with several of the earliest accounts from witnesses of the vanishing hitchhiker of Bluebell Hill. In the summer of 1968, according to an employee of the Queen Cinema, the owners of that cinema, Mr. and Mrs. Gowers, told them the story of their experience with the ghost. They had been on their way to meet friends for dinner in Maidstone, traveling down Bluebell Hill, when they saw a young woman beside the road. 
They offered her a lift and she gave an address in Maidstone that she'd like to be dropped off at, and of course, disappeared before arriving. Upset, the Gowers went to the police and told them of their encounter, and the officer said that there had been a bad accident on the hill a few years previously, and that the description they gave matched one of the girls who'd been killed. The Gowers, pillars of society and perhaps somewhat stereotypical in their stoic Victorian outlook, didn't seem to be the type to make up stories about ghosts or falsify police reports. Peter Ledbetter was driving to work at Elliott Automation at the Rochester Airport and offered a lift to a young woman near the Lower Bell Pub on Bluebell Hill, but by the time they reached the Upper Bell Inn at the top of the hill, she'd vanished. When he walked into work that morning, he was stunned enough by the experience that he didn't want to talk about it. Both of these encounters, it should be noted, took place during daylight hours. The Gowers, having been early on a late spring evening when they were on their way to dinner, and Ledbetter's around 8 o'clock in the morning when he was on his way to work. However, the girls are going in opposite directions. The girl that the Gowers picked up was headed south toward Maidstone, while the girl Ledbetter encountered was going north. Around the same time, a businessman who has requested anonymity, using the name Michael Grant in Sean Tudor's book, was traveling south down the hill toward Maidstone with his girlfriend when a young woman flagged them down from the roadside near the lower bell. Grant stopped to offer her a ride, and of course, she vanished. His girlfriend, he said, became absolutely hysterical, but beyond that, due to his request for anonymity, very few details of his, enca very few details of his encounter exist. Beyond being in the late 1960s, no specific year was given, no indication of the season or the time of day, and as with the Gowers and Ledbetter stories, no specific description of the girl was given either. In January of 2004, Bob Vanderpeer's story of an encounter that he had had appeared in the Kent Messenger. According to that report, his encounter occurred in 1962, but we'll get to why that was an error in just a moment. Bob said that he and his friend Paul Clark had stopped to pick up a girl at the roadside near the bottom of Bluebell Hill. He estimated the girl to be in her late teens or early 20s and said that she asked to be taken to Rochester. And that's where they were headed, so they offered her a lift. According to the story, the trio spent the rest of the journey in silence. After the girl disappeared, Bob says that they were concerned that she'd fallen out of the vehicle, so they immediately got out and searched both sides of the dual roadway for her, and, not finding her, called the Rochester Police Station to report the incident. The police, it was reported, treated the incident without surprise, and Bob said they were told it was the fifth report they'd received that week. However, as Sean Tudor points out in his book, there are a few problems with this story. First, the police were obliged to follow up on all reports, so their nonchalance seems a little bit unlikely. Second, the dual roadway that Bob said that he'd searched both sides of wasn't constructed until a decade later. And personally, I find that the fear that she'd fallen from the vehicle somewhat implausible, as even if they were in a convertible, which isn't indicated, I feel like you'd notice someone exiting the vehicle. Even so, if you're not prone to believe in the supernatural, I suppose thinking that she must have somehow fallen from the car unnoticed may be more plausible than thinking you'd picked up a ghost. However, someone who'd heard Bob's story from him when it was still fresh in his mind provided some clarification. Rex Harvey owned and operated the Pembroke Garage from 1969 to 1983. He knew Bob Vanderpeer as a customer and early in 1972, Bob came in with some auto trouble. In the summer of 72, he knew Bob Vanderpeer as a customer in early 1972 because Bob had come in with some auto trouble. 
In the summer of 1972, Bob shared the story with Rex Harvey that he'd picked up a young woman near Kit's Cody house on his way back from Maidstone. That version of the story omits his second witness, replacing Bob's friend Paul Clark with work papers as the reason why the girl couldn't fit in the front seat. She asked to be dropped off in Rochester. This clarification puts his encounter in the summer of 72, which would be correct and clear up the issue with the dual roadway not having been constructed yet. And the passenger's destination matches with several of the other encounters that were reported. Just after midnight, a musician by the name of Richard Studholm was on his way back to London after playing a gig at the Mitre Pub in Maidstone. At the bottom of Bluebell Hill, he spotted a girl hitchhiking. He stopped and she came running over to the car. He asked where she was headed and she said just to the top of the hill, so he agreed to take her. During the ride, before he dropped her off, she asked if he would mind going to her house to pass a message along to her family, just to let them know that she was safe. She gave an address in the Walderslade area, which Studholm said he not only wrote down, but that he had kept for several years before it was eventually lost. But everything about that encounter was entirely normal. While one might quibble over whether or not it would have been more efficient to just call, or that a late-night visit to tell someone you'd safely dropped off a girl who didn't seem to be in any sort of distress might seem strange, Studholm says he not only agreed, but he went to the house and knocked on the door. He claims that the man who answered was very upset by the news. His daughter, the man said, was killed on Bluebell Hill two years before. Studholm decided that he hadn't seen a ghost, but rather that he'd been the victim of a cruel hoax and that the girl he'd picked up had known that she was directing him to a household that had lost a daughter not long ago. While the idea of a girl passing a message to her family from beyond the grave through a kind stranger who'd given her a lift is pretty fantastical, the idea of a hoax seems to me to be equally unlikely. I can see an argument that perhaps the girl may have thought that the message that their daughter was safe could have been comforting rather than cruel, but even so, it seems improbable that someone would have even thought up the idea, much less have expected a stranger to agree to follow through on it. But even though we've just laid out a series of encounters on Bluebell Hill that certainly fall within the archetypical vanishing hitchhiker legend, the widespread idea that the hill was haunted by an accident victim didn't actually take hold until the Goodenough incident two years later in the July, two years later in July of 1974. So why would someone be planning a hoax based on an urban legend in a place that wasn't widely believed to be haunted? That, to me, seems to be somewhat unlikely. But after the Goodenough incident, the sightings on the hill change. After the Goodenough incident, the most well-known sightings become the pedestrian who, rather than trying to catch a ride, simply steps into traffic and is hit by a driver before disappearing. We'll see parallels to this in other vanishing hitchhiker legends like the Lady of White Rock Lake in Dallas or Resurrection Mary in Chicago. Several different stories, several different incidents, all getting merged into one local legend. And though we'll discuss those sightings too, for now we're just going to focus on the vanishing hitchhikers. After the pedestrian of the Goodenough incident makes the hill legendary, the vanishing hitchhiker seems to step away from the scene for a while, and she isn't reported again for nearly 15 years. Barbara Selwyn, not her real name, moved to Walderslade in 1987. She hadn't heard of the hill's reputation until one night in autumn when she had an encounter of her own. On her way home, sometime between 10.30 and 11 o'clock, she had just passed the Shell gas station on the northbound side of the A229 when, 
About 30 yards ahead, she noticed a young woman stepping out from the easement beside the road, her left hand raised, motioning for her to stop. Barbara braked and stopped about 10 feet in front of the young woman and got a clear view of her. She was about 5 feet 5 inches tall, wearing a cream-colored dress, no coat, with dark eyes and brownish hair. Barbara figured that she must have broken down, so she put on her handbrake and hazard lights, and the girl smiled as though she were relieved that someone had finally stopped. Barbara turned around to greet her, but the girl was gone. Barbara recalls being surprised by it, but not particularly frightened. Even so, she didn't get out of the car to investigate. After all, she was alone on a dangerous dark spot on the highway. So instead, she turned off her hazard lights, released the handbrake, and continued on her way. It wasn't until several days later when she was recounting the story to someone that it was suggested that maybe she had seen a ghost. After the Good Enough incident, local newspapers were quick to associate the encounter with an accident that had occurred in 1965. It's possible that that accident and the tragic circumstances surrounding it are indeed responsible for some of the sightings at Bluebell Hill. But if that is the case, I think it's far more likely linked to these vanishing hitchhikers than it is to the girl that Good Enough had encountered who seems to have been struck while trying to cross the road. So let's talk about the accident, who was involved, and where it was that they were trying to get to. On the morning of November 23, 1965, the Maidstone Gazette ran a front-page article under the headline, Girls Die in Wedding Eve Smash. A woman named Suzanne Brown had come from Australia to England and was staying in Gillingham as she finalized plans to marry her fiancé, who was a technician in the Royal Air Force. On the evening of Friday, November 19th, Suzanne was out with three members of the wedding party. Patricia Ruth Ferguson, who traveled down from Scotland and was also staying in Gillingham, Judith Lingham of Albany Road in Rochester, and Gillian Burchette, who lived just a few streets over from Judith. The next day, on November 20th, Suzanne was to become Mrs. Brian Wetton at the St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church in Gillingham. The girls had spent the day making their final preparations for the reception at the Prince of Wales Hotel in Chatham, and then going to pick up their dresses. By evening, sometime after dinner, Judith Lingham and Gillian Burchette had gone back to Gillian's flat. Suzanne and Patricia had gone to a couple of places looking for the men who'd gone out for a quiet drink with the groom before they too wound up back at Gillian's apartment. At around 10 p.m., the girls decided to go to a place outside of Maidstone either the running horse or the Malta, to have a final look for the groom. So they piled into Suzanne's Ford Cortina, with Suzanne driving and Judith in the front passenger seat, Jillian in the rear on the driver's side, and Patricia behind Judith. The weather forecast for that night had called for cloudy, misty conditions, becoming colder with a possibility of rain or sleet. And by the time the girls went out, Bluebell Hill was shrouded in misty, possibly freezing drizzle. About halfway down the hill, Jillian remembers seeing two extremely bright headlights. Suzanne turned the wheel sharply to try to avoid the oncoming car, and Jillian remembers saying, Look out, Sue, we'll be running out of road. And then she remembers nothing else. Mr. Harry Backhouse of Chatham would testify that he and a companion were traveling back to Chatham after a dinner out when they saw the girls' Cortina coming around the curve. From that moment, he said, he just knew what was going to happen. Faced with a sudden and imminent prospect of a crash, he froze. His passenger testified that she remembered thinking to herself, this car's going to hit us. Beside the article detailing the crash were photos taken within minutes of the accident, showing his Jaguar buried in the side of the girl's Ford Cortina, with police and paramedics trying to help the wounded. The wet road was covered with debris and shattered glass from the wreck. Judith Margaret Lingham, remembered by her sisters as an easygoing, happy-go-lucky girl, 
had been killed instantly in the crash. She was 22 years old. The other girls, Suzanne, Patricia, and Jillian, were rushed to the West Kent Hospital in Maidstone. Back in Gillingham, the men had returned home completely unaware of the accident. Brian Wetton, the groom, was staying with his best man, Tony Bunting. At around 2 o'clock in the morning, they were awakened by Brian's sister pounding on the front door. She told them that the police had called and that there had been a horrible accident on Bluebell Hill. Brian and Tony went and picked up another of the groomsmen, Peter Howes, and then the three of them went together to West Kent Hospital. Suzanne was in surgery when they arrived. While Brian waited outside the surgery rooms for the news, doctors told Tony Bunting, who was engaged to Patricia, that though they had done everything they could, they were unable to save his fiancée. Patricia Ruth Ferguson, a friendly and popular teacher, died as the result of her injuries. She was 23 years old. Suzanne survived the surgery, and Brian was able to see her, and from that point on, he'd rarely leave her bedside. Others had to be sent to the church to tell guests arriving for what they believed would be a cheerful celebration, the tragic and solemn news. Suzanne Brown passed away on Wednesday, November 24th, having never regained consciousness after the accident. An orphan from a young age, Suzanne was survived only by her brother Patrick and a distant uncle. Her fiancé Brian Wetton was at her side when she took her last breath. While funerals were being held for her friends in Kent, Suzanne's body was flown back to her family in Australia, where she was buried in a cemetery in Adelaide, just a mile from where she'd once lived. To try and identify which of these girls, if any, may be associated with Bluebell Hill's vanishing hitchhikers requires both trust in anecdotal and often anonymous reports of encounters with the girls, and also a fair bit of excavation. Most of our research for this episode, as we've said, is taken directly from Sean Tudor's book, The Ghosts of Bluebell Hill. Sean Tudor was inspired, at least in part, by Michael Goss's book and research on the Hill's lore, titled The Evidence for Phantom Hitchhikers, an objective survey of the vanishing passenger from urban myths to actual events. If you're interested in reading either of these books, there will be links in the show notes and on our website. And for his part, Michael Goss was inspired, at least in part, by a researcher and lecturer from Maidstone named Dennis Chambers. Before Tudor or Goss, Chambers was one of the leading researchers on the legends surrounding Bluebell Hill, and specifically, how those legends correlated to the three girls who died there in 1965. He had newspaper articles, notes, cuttings, and dozens upon dozens of reported sightings. Michael Goss and Dennis Chambers also both rely heavily on interviews done by a man named Tom Harbour. Tom Harbour was a blind switchboard operator in the Oakwood Hospital in Barming, and one of the early newspaper articles, appearing on September 10, 1968 in the Maidstone Gazette, identifies Harbour as working to locate and interview actual witnesses to the ghost. Tom Harbour eventually spoke to over a dozen witnesses who claimed to have encountered the hitchhikers personally. His interviews, though, so far as I know, have never appeared in print anywhere, and because of that, we're left to rely on Mr. Harbour's ability to examine and cross-examine those witnesses, and also we have to take him at his word for what the interviews revealed when we decide just exactly how much faith to put into their accounts. Harbour had interviewed paramedics, a post office driver, and several others, and it was Harbour who, it would seem, first linked the hitchhiker to the fatal accident involving Suzanne Brown's wedding party. Harbour said that the witnesses that he himself had put the most faith in were the ones that did not give perfect descriptions of minute details, because, and we'll see this in modern criminal investigations as well, 
Most eyewitnesses don't display total accuracy in recalling the specifics. If they'd given that level of detail, Harbour said, he'd have known it was a load of nonsense. So what did his interviews reveal? Well, everyone interviewed had assumed that the girl was a real person, at least at the start of the encounter. There was nothing transparent or ghostly about her when they first saw her. According to Harbour, the timing of the encounters was pretty consistent. Most of the encounters occurred sometime between 11 p.m. and midnight, about the same time as the accident. You'll remember in the encounters that we'd shared earlier, several of the reports, and it would seem the more frequent reports, are of a girl asking to be taken north toward Rochester. Though there are other reports that featured a girl that had asked to be taken south toward Maidstone. Chambers believed the reason for this was that there were two members of the wedding party being seen on Bluebell Hill, and actually, even before a reading of Chambers' hypothesis, I'd begun separating these two reports in my mind as well. As we've seen researching other cases, if the reports are different, it would make sense to not simply toss them all into the same legend, but instead to divide and subdivide them and look to see if there may be reasons for the differences. According to Dennis Chambers' compilation of reports, there were significant differences. In fact, he found that throughout the reports, there was a commonality in the physical description of the girl going to Rochester that wasn't shared by the other girl. Similarly, the physical descriptions of the girl going south toward Maidstone were consistent amongst themselves while remaining distinct from the girl going north. And not just that, but the girls displayed different personalities. Now, I will say, I have not seen Chambers' work. I haven't seen the reports he collected. It may well be that confirmation bias led him to see or to create these differences, and that my own confirmation bias leads me to accept them, quite literally sight unseen, as I'd already come up with the two ghosts hypothesis myself. But working from Dennis Chambers' information, information reported by Sean Tudor, who was actually skeptical of this view, drivers traveling north from Maidstone toward Rochester would report picking up a quiet, reserved brunette who would sometimes mention having been in an automobile accident and needing a ride home before getting in and sitting silently in the back seat. Those who remembered the address that she gave, including some who claimed to have gone to the home themselves, as is common in vanishing hitchhiker lore, were able to give a street address on Albany Road. That those who'd picked up the girl had gone to her home on Albany Road is actually also reported in several newspaper accounts dating back as early as 1974, the first newspaper accounts that linked the sightings to the accident. That would seem to point to the girl going to Rochester as being Judith Lingham. Judith was the girl who'd been killed instantly at the site of the accident. She was a dark-haired brunette, and at the time of her death, she lived with her family on Albany Road. Skeptically, I have to point out that with the widespread publicity of both the crash and the ghost several years later, many of the people reporting sightings to Dennis Chambers could have known these details. But if they hadn't, if we allow ourselves some trust in the reporters, in the reports themselves, and in the researchers who'd collected these stories, the alignment between Judith and this reported hitchhiker is pretty hard to ignore. And based on the reports collected by Dennis Chambers and the eyewitness interviews done by Tom Harbour, I believe that we can identify the other hitchhiker as well. As to the physical descriptions, the girl going north was a brunette, but the girl going south toward Maidstone is consistently said to be a blonde. Where the brunette girl is described as quiet or reserved, the blonde is said to be talkative, even chatty. One of the people interviewed by Harbour continued to believe, even years afterward, 
that he had a living girl in the car with him. The witness, interviewed by Harbor less than 24 hours after the encounter took place, claimed that the girl had talked about going to a wedding. Her own wedding. Others said that the southbound blonde would not only talk about going to her wedding, but said that she was looking for the groom. Some even said that she was looking for him to let him know about an automobile accident. Again, if these witnesses and their stories are to be believed, this girl would almost have to be Suzanne Brown. Suzanne was not only the bride, expecting to be married the next day, but she was the only blonde woman in the car as they traveled south toward Maidstone looking for her groom. And if these witnesses' accounts are true, it seems she's still looking for him. But having identified at least three separate ghosts reported with some level of frequency and consistency on Bluebell Hill, there are still others. One of the more recent of these unique groups of sightings, and one that seemed to have only occurred for about a decade between the mid-80s and mid-90s, is that of an older woman. On the night of Wednesday, January 6, 1994, Angela Maiden and her husband Marcus, with her 64-year-old mother and their young daughter and a family friend, were returning home about 12.45 in the morning after a night out. Marcus noticed what appeared to be a haggard old woman crossing the northbound side of the road about halfway up Bluebell Hill. At first I thought it was someone in a fancy dress costume. It was wearing a long dress, very old-fashioned, that stopped about mid-calf. It had a tartan shawl around the top and a bonnet with a brim. The figure stopped in the middle of the road, as if to let them pass by, and they slowed down in the fog to make sure they didn't hit the woman. But as they slowly passed her, with her only about a foot from the window, the figure slowly turned and hissed at them. Ms. Maiden described the woman as very small and wizened. The eyes were very close together, small and round and black, and her mouth was thin-lipped. Then it began to sneer. It had an enormous mouth which was totally black, and it hissed, lifted its arm, and began shaking twigs at us as if it were putting a curse on us. Their young daughter was asleep, but everyone else in the car witnessed the encounter. The maidens reported their sighting to the police and were, apparently, told there were two or three other similar calls that night. As they drove away, Mrs. Maiden's mother turned around to watch the woman as she moved toward the curb, but she vanished before she got there. Policeman Jonathan Thomas of the West Malling Police said that, though a thorough search of the area was made, nothing was found that would have accounted for the incident. The next day, Angela Maiden contacted a woman who she knew who owned a cottage near the place of their encounter, and she asked if she'd ever seen anything strange. Though the woman answered no, she said that enough strange things had been happening outside the house that she was sometimes frightened. An article ran in the Kent Today newspaper that requested that any other witnesses come forward and a cab driver named Colin Ecott responded. Ecott had worked for a Chatham cab company and said that he had seen the same woman, dressed in old clothing, crossing the road about two years earlier. Not believing in ghosts though, he had assumed it was someone playing a prank, but the maiden's experience made him reconsider. It was a rainy night, and about 9.15 he was taking four young men to the Great Danes Hotel near Hollingburn when he saw the figure, just before the Aylesford turnoff. She was wearing a black cloak, a long hat, and walked with a stick, he said. We couldn't see her face at all. The youths in the car started calling names out the window at the woman, but failed to get her to respond. And then, the woman just disappeared. Another family, referred to in Sean Tudor's book, the ghosts of Bluebell Hill as Mr. and Mrs. Rayburn, and whose request for anonymity we will respect here as well, said that they had encountered the woman the night before the maidens had. 
The Rayburns described their encounter with her and provided Tudor with a description that matched what the maidens had shared, including details that weren't widely reported in the media, such as specific behaviors and the location of the encounter. On the night in question, Mr. Rayburn, his wife Diane, and their two children were on their way back from a birthday dinner around midnight. Near the pathway that leads to the Kitts Cody House stones, their daughter remarked, I wonder if we'll see the ghost. Mr. Rayburn said that he had responded, don't be bloody stupid, when a minute or so later he rounded the corner near Kitts Cody Cottage and they saw an old woman standing in the middle of the road. She crossed the road from right to left, facing them the entire time. He slowed down as they approached her, passing at about five miles an hour. They said that her features appeared to be drawn, and she was carrying a bundle of heather and beckoned toward their car as they passed. Like the maidens, the Rayburns were shaken by the experience and found a police car just up the road to report the incident. Mr. Rayburn, still upset about the incident, called police at 3 a.m. to see if there was any explanation for what they had seen, but was told that the investigation had found no sign of the old woman. All of these encounters had occurred between 1990 and 1993, but Sean Tudor collected other stories that had occurred years before. In 1984, Don Gallagher, who, like the Rayburns, had his name changed to protect his anonymity, was on his way home to Aylesford from visiting an elderly aunt when, just past the lower bell, he saw a woman rushing toward him in the middle of the road. He swerved and then pulled to a stop to make sure that he had missed her. By the time he got out of his car, she was already halfway up the hill behind him. Illuminated by the headlights of cars following her up the hill, Gallagher described her as wearing a dark dress, a bonnet, and a shawl. But it was the speed at which she was moving up the hill that he found to be particularly unnatural. He said that she seemed to glide almost effortlessly up the hill at six or seven miles per hour, faster than many athletes would even be able to ascend that steep incline. And not only did she seem oblivious to the cars around her, the cars around her seemed oblivious to her. Four years later, in the late spring or early summer of 1988, around one o'clock in the morning, Nick Norris and several of his friends were ascending the hill themselves when they saw the crouched form of an old woman sitting just off the road. They described her as dressed in dark clothing with a hood or bonnet and a brown shawl around her shoulders, and as with the others who'd seen her, they noted the bundle of sticks or heather. Nick said that the event stuck in their minds because, though it had been over quickly and there wasn't anything particularly paranormal about it per se, there was an unexpectedness to seeing someone at that spot at that hour, and there was a general feeling that, as he put it, it shouldn't have been so. A few years later, John Arnold, who lives with his wife and three daughters on Kitts Cody Estate, was out with his then-girlfriend when, near midnight, they saw an old lady on the side of the road near where, they, near where the steps descend to Kitts Cody Field. She didn't turn toward them or really even acknowledge them when they approached, but started to cross the road in front of them, causing John's girlfriend to slam on the brakes to avoid hitting her. They described that woman as being about 70, with yellowy hair. He doesn't remember her clothing, but he does remember that she carried a bundle of heather or lavender. She stood in their headlights, looking at them for a few long moments, and they didn't think she was anything but an odd elderly lady until several years later when they read other stories about the ghost of Bluebell Hill. In 1991, James Shoebridge and three of his friends had an encounter near the stones of Little Kit's Cody House, and it was this incident that seemed to be the most like something out of a horror film. When we spotted it, Shoebridge wrote, it was standing facing the opposite side like she was watching out across the way. It turned as we approached. The car cut out, and then she was in front of the vehicle. It didn't step into the road. It was just kind of there after we saw it in the hedgerow. 
Their vehicle had died, and one of the girls panicked and tried to get out of the car, and in doing so had managed to hurt her hand. They described a hissing noise that seemed to fill the car, and the woman tried to strike the car with her bundled sticks. As to a description, Shoebridge said, It seemed like her shawl and dress were one, tatty and dark. One of the girls was sure that she wore a tartan shawl, but me and the driver swore it was simply black. Also, I think our friend said that she had something like a little skull of an animal hanging in a braid. This I can neither recall or confirm, but I do remember the hideous mouth and lank white hair. Those are burned on my brain forever. But what stood out about Shoebridge's description was the woman's skin. What I can say with certainty is that she had very dark skin and a face that was unbelievably wrinkled, and I'm not sure it was even an apparition per se. It felt more ancient and chilling than the ghost of some old girl should be, he said. There had been a number of suggestions in the area as to just what the origin of the ghost may have been. A gypsy woman who'd sold pegs, a former village resident who local children tended to be afraid of, but there were also two women whose lives may have actually been the source of the modern sightings. The first, known alternately by locals as either Dirty Dolly or Paraffin Lynn, was Emmeline King, an eccentric, reclusive old woman who lived near the Upper Bell Inn until the 1950s. Most of her eccentricities weren't really all that eccentric. She was known for her cats. Local children found her scary. She habitually wore black clothing, and near the end of her life, she was feeble and was only able to walk slowly. At the risk of sounding stereotypical, none of these characterizations really set her apart from many elderly women. How she came by her nickname, though, is that she only seemed to venture out to buy more paraffin. Emmeline King was found having burned to death in her home on Sunday, June 28, 1951. Firefighters found a number of oil stoves and lamps in the debris, and three one-gallon paraffin cans. It was proposed that one of her cats had knocked over one of the stoves, starting a fire. Mrs. King had lived in a home that some would describe as a shack, in the woodlands right about where a traffic interchange now sits, the M2 Junction 3 interchange to be specific. And while much of his description of the old woman of Bluebell Hill was similar to what others have described, James Shoebridge's description of the woman's skin, dark and wrinkled and not at all like an apparition, certainly could suggest a fit with Emmeline King's tragic and frankly horrific death. In his book, Sean Tudor reprints several messages that he had received that suggest that the ghostly old woman may actually be a better fit with another woman who'd once lived near Kitts Cody. Another eccentric woman, known for her vividly dyed red hair and long flowing old-fashioned clothing, was known around the neighborhood near Kitts Cody for cutting flowers from her own yard or garden and then selling them to her neighbors. And then she'd take the money that she'd earned and walk to Maidstone, where she'd spend the money at a pub appropriately named The Flower Pot. We're aware of this woman's identity, but as Tudor chooses to identify her by the last name Ash to protect her family's anonymity, we'll do likewise. Elsie Ash was known to her neighbors as Annie. She lived with her husband Teddy on a property known as The Helm, immediately north of the steps that led down to Kitts Cody Field. Nigel, whose aunts lived near Mrs. Ash and who'd encountered her several times during his childhood, wrote to Sean that she regarded herself as some sort of self-appointed guardian of Bluebell Hill, the Kitts Cody and the countless stones further down. Another writer suggested that Elsie always dolled herself up on a Friday, complete with fox fur and bright red lipstick, and then went off to Maidstone. There, she would drink at the pubs until wandering back home late at night. Mrs. Ash was rumored to have been seen standing atop the Kitts Cody stones during a full moon in nothing but her nightgown, or wandering the chalk quarries late at night. One night, she was caught in a heavy rain walking home from the pub, 
and not long after, she died. Elsie Ash, known to her friends as Annie, died of pneumonia at her home near her beloved Kitts Cody Stone on February 7, 1955. She was 72 years old. Annie was survived by her husband Teddy, who passed away a decade later. It's of interest to note that the sightings of the old woman on Bluebell Hill may actually play more into the ancient folklore of the British Isles than it does into the traditional vanishing hitchhiker legends. The old woman of Bluebell Hill was most commonly encountered on cold winter nights. In Gaelic folklore, the old woman was an ancient figure often depicted as a hooded crone or hag, her common depiction as being the personification of winter, tending to rule from Halloween or Samhain until the summer commences on May Day or Beltane. By midwinter, sometime around early February, the crone's grip on winter is weakening, and according to a tradition that closely parallels Groundhog Day, if the day is bright and sunny, she'll go out and gather firewood, either bundles of sticks or heather, to prepare for a longer winter. But if the days are overcast, she'll continue to sleep and winter will soon be over. Many Scottish mountains are also said to be protected by their own personal crone, and high places and sacred spots throughout the Isles have similar traditions. In Ireland, she's connected to caves and dolmens, the same sort of Neolithic stones found at Kitts Cody and other sites on Bluebell Hill. And in Ireland, she goes by names like Anne, or Anna, or Gentle Annie. Often borrowed by the Dianic Wiccan or other neo-pagan groups that consider themselves tied to the Neolithic stones, the hag, or crone, or old woman, also plays into a deeper triptych of folklore. She's the third aspect of a trinity, the maiden, the mother, and the crone. The maiden is young and virginal and represents new beginnings, enthusiasm, and the promise of spring. The mother represents fertility and abundance and growth and the warmth of summer. And the crone often represents not only wisdom, but the cold, darkness, and death of winter. The maiden is often revered, the mother is honored, but the crone is forgotten and reviled. And while Annie Ash or Emmeline King may bear odd similarities to the crone of ancient folklore, the other sightings at Bluebell Hill also seem to provide us with the two other aspects as well. In fact, Sean Tudor suggests in his book that perhaps the three types of hauntings, the girl walking beside the road that we've linked to Emily Triggs' murder, the vanishing bride that appears to be Suzanne Brown, and the crone of this story who we believe may be Annie Ash, may all exist on the hill because of each other as part of that folkloric cycle. But if that's true, what do we make of the other ghosts? After all, there are also girls on bicycles, men on bicycles, male vanishing hitchhikers, and while we won't be able to tell their stories on this episode, those reported sightings also have real historical tragedies behind them. And of course, we still haven't talked about the girl who started this story. The girl that steps into traffic and is hit by a car, and who is believed to be very real by those who encounter her. Ian Sharp, a 54-year-old taxi driver, was on his way home to Maidstone just before midnight on Sunday, November 8, 1992, when the girl appeared in front of him. He had no time to react. She turned to face him, her eyes locked on his, and then he hit her. Horrified, he slammed on his brakes, skidded to a stop, and shakily got out of his car. I honestly thought I'd killed her, he said. You can't imagine how I felt. I was so scared to look underneath my car. But I knelt down and looked straight through. There was nothing there. Ian searched around the car, in the grass and bushes beside the road, and he found nothing. He tried to flag down two other cars for assistance, but no one would stop. 
So he got back in his car and drove to Maidstone, to the police station, to report the incident. Shaking like a leaf, he reported that he'd run over a woman, but that he couldn't find her body. After listening to his story and noting where the accident took place, the officers told him the legend of the ghost said to haunt that stretch of road. Even so, the officers went back to the scene of the accident with him and searched the area. They too found no trace of the girl, and there was no sign of damage to his car. The Kent Today newspaper made the announcement of the ghost return on November 10th with a front page article and the headline, Ghost Girl Seen Again. The common scientific explanation for these sorts of encounters is that people entered a mildly hypnagogic state while driving, sometimes referred to as highway hypnosis. But Ian Sharp had been a cab driver for 33 years. His career as someone acclimated to long hours of driving and driving late at night would seem to preclude this sort of explanation. It was clear that he had been shaken by the encounter, that he had believed that what he saw enough that the police accompanied him back to the scene to look for the girl. And their conclusion that the only explanation for his reported encounter was the ghost of Bluebell Hill delighted the media, particularly for how closely it paralleled the Goodenough incident, two nearly identical encounters separated by 18 years. The next sighting didn't take 18 years though, it took two weeks. On Sunday, November 22nd, about 10.55, Christopher Dawkins had just passed the intersection of Robin Hood Lane when a woman suddenly appeared in the path of his Toyota. She ran in front of the car. She stopped and looked at me. There was no expression on her face. Then I hit her, and it was as if the ground had just moved apart and she went under the car. I thought I'd killed her because it wasn't as if she was see-through or anything. She was as solid and as real as you are. As Sharp had, Dawkins got out of his car to look for the injured woman, but he couldn't find her. He searched for a public telephone box to call his father. As the phone rang, he waited for his father to pick up, and the idea struck him that the body still had to be under the car, but he couldn't bring himself to look. When his father arrived, Dawkins broke down. His father phoned police from the home of a nearby resident, Marion Warburton, who attested to the distress that the accident had caused the young man. Police arrived and searched the area, but again, couldn't find the girl and couldn't find any damage to the vehicle. The Kent Today newspaper put this incident on their front page too, under the headline, Bluebell Hill Ghost Seen Again. They'd have another story a few months later in June of 1993. Paula Cooper had been on her way home in the early morning hours of Sunday, June 20th, after a night out with friends in Maidstone. She was on her way up Bluebell Hill when it appeared that someone had run out in front of her and there was no way for her to have stopped in time. It felt like I went over something, she said. I really thought I had hit a person. She too stopped her car and looked around, but being that it was one o'clock in the morning and she was alone, she couldn't see anyone, so she didn't get out. Instead, she drove directly to the Chatham police station and reported the incident. The police found nothing, no body, no damage. She didn't get a clear enough look at the victim to determine whether they'd been a male or female, only that whomever it was had been wearing a white shirt. Newspapers were quick to link these sightings with Judith Lingham, who died near the location of the sightings back in 1965. But to me, that doesn't make sense. Judith had died as the result of the automobile accident. It makes sense, or at least as much as any ghost story does, that she'd seek rides back home. It doesn't make sense that after so many encounters with a ghost that could be Judith, Hitching a ride and even giving an address in Rochester that actually matched the street that Judith had lived on, it doesn't make sense that she would suddenly change tactics. To me, this ghost seems more like a pedestrian who died after being struck by a car. 
An accident, most likely, or perhaps even someone who'd committed suicide by stepping into traffic on a busy highway. So who could she have been? On the night of October 28, 1981, Sharon Joyce Berry was walking home from work. Normally, her father said she'd have caught a bus home, but on this particular night, she didn't have the fare. So despite the cold rain and the encroaching darkness, walking was her only option. Her family had just moved to an o- her family had just moved to a house on Old Chatham Road at the foot of Bluebell Hill a week before, and she worked at a supermarket on Farley Road, clear on the other side of Maidstone. So it took her nearly an hour to walk. A 54-year-old doctor was driving north on the A229 around 6:50 p.m. when suddenly a figure appeared in front of his vehicle. As in the ghost story shared previously, he didn't ever have a chance at stopping in time. Suddenly, a figure appeared to dash at me. Within seconds, there was a horrifying thud at the front of my car and my windscreen shattered, he said. He stopped and got out of the car on the busy roadway, expecting to walk back and find someone laying there and the traffic stopped. But she wasn't there. Instead, he found the girl on the roof of his vehicle. He moved her carefully to the ground and checked for a pulse, but she was already gone. At the inquest, another motorist testified that he too had passed someone dressed in white who was trying to flag him down. I assumed the figure had broken down or was asking for assistance, he said, so he pulled to a stop to see if she needed help, and as he did, another driver ran into him from behind. That driver, accompanied by his girlfriend, testified that he too had seen the girl motioning for assistance, that she appeared to move quickly toward the street, but neither of them had witnessed the accident that killed her. Sharon Joyce Berry died on the night of October 28, 1981, as the result of injuries sustained when she was hit by an automobile trying to cross the A229 roadway at the bottom of Bluebell Hill, near Old Chatham Road. She was 19 years old. At the coroner's inquest, a verdict of accidental death was reported. Now, depending on how closely you're paying attention to the story, you may be wondering how Sharon Berry's death in 1981 relates back to the Good Enough incident. The short answer is, it doesn't. The Good Enough incident occurred in 1974. Sharon Berry actually fits the descriptions of the girl reported in the more recent encounters by Ian Sharp, Chris Dawkins, and Paula Cooper. But the girl that Maurice Goodenough believed that he had struck in his encounter that not only started our episode, but also brought the ghosts of Bluebell Hill into public consciousness was described as being much younger, only 10 years old by his description. And I can find no girl who died on the hill in a manner that fits his report, and as a result, am left with no explanation for the Good Enough incident. Just after midnight on Sunday, June 10th, 2012, two 17-year-olds, Ryan Banks and Dan Mulford, made the turn into Bluebell Hill Village. Just as Ryan steered around a parked car, a young woman darted out in the road in front of him. But unlike the other stories, Ryan managed to stop in time. The woman placed her hands on the front of his car to stop them from going any farther. Dan started to wind his window down and the woman came toward his side of the car. They guessed that she must have been around 22 or 23 years old, describing her as fairly attractive and dressed in a sleeveless white blouse and dark skirt. She had shoulder-length brownish hair that framed a pale, ashen face and dark eyes with her mascara smudged. Can you help me, she pleaded. Dan described her as looking like someone who'd just woken up and didn't know where they were. Then he went on to say, She kept saying, Can you help me? And we'd say, What with? And every time we said that, she said, Can you help me? Then she asked where she was and we said Bluebell Hill. And she was like, 
Why the hell am I here? Where's Bluebell Hill? The boys asked where she lived and she gave an address that they didn't recognize. And then she said, I need you to help me and tried getting into the car. The doors were locked and understandably, the teenagers chose to drive away. Ryan would later say, I just drove, I went, I wasn't staying there any longer. It is not only possible, but entirely probable that the girl that Dan Mulford and Ryan Banks encountered that night was a very real, very living young woman. In 2003, Bluebell Hill Village had been closed off to through traffic to Maidstone, and as a result of the loss of this traffic, the Upper Bell Inn was forced to shut down. The entirety of Bluebell Hill is much quieter at night now. There is little traffic and even fewer pedestrians. But the old, unused Upper Bell Inn was frequented by squatters and drug addicts, and there were several reports of arrests related to drug use there. To me, this seems like a more reasonable explanation for a young woman wandering there unsure of where she was and trying to get into vehicles. On August 25th, 2012, just a few days after Dan Mulford and Ryan Banks had their experience on Bluebell Hill, author Neil Arnold and a team of investigators went to the spot where the most recent encounter had taken place. They pulled off onto a side road near what used to be the Upper Bell Inn, and after a few minutes, a cab driver from the express cabs of Maidstone came off a nearby street and, seeing them standing there talking, pulled up to them. One of the people in the group waved him off and told him that they hadn't called a cab. The driver looked baffled. He explained that he had been called to take someone from the Upper Bell to Bridgewood Manor about a mile north. It wasn't anyone from their group, they said, but then Neil decided to ask the driver what name he had. The driver looked at the slip of paper and read, Barry. It was the same name as the young woman who died trying to cross the road. The driver called into the office to let him know that he was having trouble finding his passenger and verify the address, but they told him that they had no record of a fare from that location. So the driver shrugged and drove away. This was a bonus episode. The Mini Ghost of Bluebell Hill. If you enjoy Epitaph, please take time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. Want a place to connect with us or discuss episodes with others? Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at, at EpitaphPod. If you've got a few extra dollars, please consider joining our Patreon. There, you'll get access to Epitaph, The Others, our special subscriber-only bonus show and other exclusive content. Epitaph is an independent bi-weekly podcast. This episode was researched, written, hosted, and produced by Epitaph Podcasts. The content of this podcast is copyright Epitaph Incorporated, 2019, all rights reserved.